Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. This podcast is part of the Planet Broadcasting Network. Visit planetbroadcasting.com for more podcasts from our great mates. As well as the Making Star Wars Podcast Network. Southern California tickets are now on sale for the Steel Wars 200th podcast live at the Scum and Villainy Cantina on Saturday the 2nd of February at 3.30pm and we will be joined by special interview guest Eric Walker who played Mace Tuani in the 80s Ewok made for TV films A Caravan of Courage, An Ewok Adventure and Ewoks The Battle for Endor. Get ready for behind-the-scenes stories from the films, what it was like to work with Warwick Davis, and, of course, the maker, George Lucas. Plus, we'll have a special audience mic set up if you've got a question to ask, too. And if you can, hang out for a bit after the show and take in all the fun of the Scum and Villainy Cantina. Pre-sale tickets are just $10 and are available from SteelWars.com or $12 on the door from the Scum and Villainy Cantina. I cannot wait to talk Ewoks with Eric and I hope to see you there. But for now, let's get on with the show. Industrial Light and Magic was founded by George Lucas in 1975 to make his vision for Star Wars a reality. ILM is synonymous with groundbreaking visual effects. I sat down with veteran ILMer Beth D'Amato and the company's new head Rob Bredow to talk about the major visual effects accomplishments in Solo, A Star Wars Story. But on a personal note, it's always daunting. I worked on the prequels, I worked on Rogue One, and it was no different starting solo. It was just as exciting. This movie, just like Rogue One, harkens back to those originals, and it really, really tugs at your heart with the first time you see something like the Millennium Falcon, just like the first time we saw the Star Destroyer. So for me, it wasn't daunting technically, but it was really daunting emotionally. You just, you can't help but feel the power of it when you're starting on a movie like this. And I think that really inspires everybody through the whole production. This is Steel Wars episode 188, ILM and the visual effects of Solo. This episode is also available in full enhanced video at youtube.com forward slash Steel Wars. If you want to watch it right now, just click the link in this episode's show notes. How daunting is it working on visual effects for a new Star Wars film when the original film opened with one of the most iconic visual effects shots of all time? With the Star Destroyer going over the camera. How is that to follow up on four decades later? It's a, it's a pretty intimidating role to be in charge of the visual effects for a Star Wars film that, like, like you say, is just such an iconic moment and for me it's the whole reason that I'm in this business is because of the impact that those series of films had on me growing up as a kid so first you want to do your best job possible and, you, and then second you really think like man I really don't want to mess this up like I've got to make sure every one of these shots looks fantastic so fortunately 
here at Industrial Light and Magic, we have some of the people who worked on those opening shots, people like Dennis Muren and other legends of the industry. So you can always pick up a phone and ask a question or get some suggestions how to make the train heist just a little bit better. Um, so it really is a great place to get to work on these Star Wars films. That shot has inspired from Samuel L. Jackson to the solo director, Ron Howard. They've commented how an effect it had on them. What effect did it have on you guys when you first saw it? What shot? What effect did that shot have? Yeah. Oh gosh, it, it's the reason I'm here. It, it blew my mind. I mean, I was seven years old when that movie came out, and I never forgot it. I've been inspired by it my whole life. And I was going to say, technically speaking, it's less daunting to start another Star Wars movie because, like Rob said, we're surrounded by people who have been working on Star Wars movies and been innovative in this industry for years. But on a personal note, it's always daunting. I worked on the prequels, I worked on Rogue One, and it was no different starting solo. It was just as exciting. This movie, just like Rogue One, harkens back to those originals, and it really, really tugs at your heart with the first time you see something like the Millennium Falcon, just like the first time we saw the Star Destroyer. So for me, it wasn't daunting technically, but it was really daunting emotionally. You just, you can't help but feel the power of it when you're starting on a movie like this. And I think that really inspires everybody through the whole production. Yeah, well, I guess it's comforting that you're lighting a room with the people that invented the light globe. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> on the Blu-ray, I was really impressed on the bonus features. There was a lot of stuff in the, the technical process and that sort of harkens back to George Lucas was very into educating the viewer on how things were made. Did that influence you guys to get into the, the business? Absolutely. George Lucas was just such an innovator. I mean, you think of pretty much everything we use in modern filmmaking, um, he had some sort of hand in creating. So um, the first real computer graphics in production was started at ILM, and then a, a tiny little division broke off of it, which eventually became known as Pixar. And then, of course, Pixar, now just across the bay from here, is making these amazing animated films one after another with these fantastic stories. The idea that we can edit digitally, the very first digital editing system, I think was called EditDroid, and was invented at ILM. And George Lucas has just had this passion for uh, innovation, and he's really advanced storytelling tools so much with innovation. So our idea on Solo was could we take the best of those old school techniques, because we wanted Solo to feel kind of like it had been shot somewhere around 1970 mm -hmm. with old school techniques, but then use the best high-tech version, the innovative version of that. So whether that was wrapping um, a 180-degree screen around the Millennium Falcon so we could actually use old-school rear projection techniques, but then modernize it with the latest digital projectors and the latest digital media servers so we could interactively, when Ron Howard calls out, hey, I want to go back to this moment, or I need more blaster fire from the right, we could do that in the moment and give both the lighting and the, and the experience all around the actors all in real time. Yeah, I was very interested in the bonus features. It seemed like the filming in space in the Millennium Falcon was an adventure for the actors in that I think uh, Phoebe mentions that it was like going to hyperspace because you've got the, the cockpit on a gimbal and you've got this giant screen. It seems like it was a day at Disneyland for those guys. And I know you are developing a park at Disney. How much sharing of technology to film a Star Wars film is going into entertain Star Wars fans next year? Well, we're really fortunate to be working with Walt Disney Imagineering on the new expansion to the park and the new Star Wars rides. And uh, Imagineering has already announced that there's gonna be this Millennium Falcon ride and 
that, that collaboration, that close work between Industrial Light and Magic and Imagineering to, to give everybody who goes to that park kind of a version of that experience you just described that the actors got to go through. Um, that's something that's super fun that we get to deliver. Yeah, and it sort of delivers a different experience to the like the, the Star Trek uh, trope of just rocking the, the set yeah. or pretending it goes from side to side. Was there any injuries on the set that things got a bit too real? There were times where panels came loose um, and needed to be reattached forcefully <laughs> so that they wouldn't be breaking loose. Because if you watch that sequence, there's times where the charges are going off and panels are breaking off. So there, was, they, there were times in the sequence when they were supposed to happen, but with so much shaking and such violent action that would happen, in, you know, it took us multiple days to shoot that sequence. So we spent a lot of time in that little cramped cockpit. Uh, there, were, there were some close calls. I don't think anybody actually got hurt, but I do, I mean, uh, Alden especially spent a lot of time in that cockpit working really hard. So I think he had a sore back from all that flying the Millennium Falcon through the Kessel Run. He, he had a real run of it. I think for Star Wars fans, one of the most exciting things about Solo was getting to see a younger version of the Millennium Falcon, one of our favourite characters. What challenges were there to present the Falcon in a fresh way? The design of the Millennium Falcon, we called it Lando's Falcon, right? The Falcon that we first discover in this film. And touching the design of probably the most famous and, and maybe one of the best designed spaceships in the history of, of these kind of films. You know, you want to be really careful when you change that. But James Klein was our supervising uh, production designer on that, and he's so talented. And he really kind of found that balance between making it new, but still having it throw back to the past. And then also we designed it in such a way that it was really just a shell around the original Falcon, so that during the Kessel Run, pieces can rip off and will we slowly reveal the character of the Millennium Falcon we all know and love throughout that Kessel Run. So that was a fun twist to be able to do with the story. Star Wars films, they're, they're known for their detail for fans. How much detail went into each bit of damage to the ship <laughs> so it reflected the ship we saw in Star Wars? How much uh, magnifying glassing went on? We care a lot about the details like that. So there's actually 12 or 13 completely different models of the Millennium Falcon. So every time a rock impacts it, you saw we ripped off that section and left a hole in that section of the ship. And we were actually literally revealing the ship that you're going to see in episode four below that. So yeah, if uh, we, we really, uh, all the artists here really love those original films and any chance we got to pay homage to those films. It was a big opportunity for us. We loved it. Yeah, fill a theater with Star Wars geeks and then ask that question. That's basically what dailies were like every single day. <laughs> yes, that's right. Which version is this? What panel comes out of this one? Yeah, it was quite a discussion, but you could you could imagine the attention to detail with that many fans who are also working on the movie in a room at the same time. As someone that has seen the films a couple of times, <laughs> I was very impressed with the new, like, actual angles we got to see the ship at, where it was the engines and, and the really cool David Fincher-esque uh, engine sort of going through the intestines of the Millennium Falcon. How much thought was put into that? Yeah, we had a lot of careful design thought that went into first the coverage on the Falcon and then, like you say, getting to go inside the Falcon, getting to see that coaxium dropped into the engine and all the way to the back of the ship. Th those were really fun shots to design. The um, 
one of the most fun things was just the coverage and the camera angles that Ron Howard had in mind for the Millennium Falcon. We always wanted this to feel like a 1970s movie. So he had uh, recently directed a whole racing movie where he'd put cameras on top of racing cars around real tracks. And uh, we kind of built on that with this film. And there were mounts that we put all over the Millennium Falcon. Of course, these are virtual camera mounts in the computer to make it really feel as visceral and as grounded as possible. And that was some of the fun things to put cameras on the Millennium Falcon in ways that you haven't seen it before. A, a fresh thing in Solo for Star Wars fans was the speeder chase, which sort of a little bit fast and furious in a galaxy far, far away. Now, previously, speeders, the effect had been done through Vaseline. Uh, explain how things have developed in 40 years. Well, we had uh, Alden and any stunt actors in an actual vehicle with wheels and speeder-esque attachments to it and roll bars that had to be painted out. Uh, the, the tires underneath the car had to be painted out. The shadows that all of that left on the ground had to be painted out. So our team in Vancouver really, really nailed how to get that done. But um, if you imagine all the close-ups of the actors inside those vehicles, there was a lot of structure that was there for their safety, but then had to be painted out frame by frame. So that was just one aspect of it. But then there's yeah. the environment itself, which I'm sure you could speak to. That yeah, was sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the buildup of that digital environment. We found a great location, and, and as, as we were saying, real cars to run around these, the, this uh, abandoned power plant that we found just outside of London. So I think the sequence has, a, uh, like you say, kind of a Fast and the Furious feel because those are real stuntmen driving real 670 horsepower vehicles down these really cramped areas and doing real stunts. And then some of the shots, even when they became all digital because of lighting or a different change in the sequence, uh, we were still able to heavily leverage that stunt work to give the cars that authentic feel. So hopefully, as a viewer, you have no idea which shots were all digital and which shots were captured in camera because they should all mix blunt, uh, seamlessly together. Watching the bonus footage this morning, it was like I felt naive beforehand <laughs> that, that how many different things were part of it. It was, it was quite seamless. The sort of in the, in the 2000s, it would have been all done like CGI and, and now we've sort of gone back to a, like a practical mix. Is that gamut of everything on the table, there's a smorgasbord, does that sort of hinder or just help? Um, I love having as many practical effects as possible. And I think as you talk with any of the other heads of departments, um, we all get excited whenever we can make things practically. And I'm, you know, I'm the visual effects guy, right? I'm supposed to be pulling for the visual effects, but actually it, uh, I spend more time when we're shooting a movie working with the various heads of departments to make sure that the practical thing is, has the highest chance of success. Um, and then, of course, if something doesn't pan out or we need to help with visual effects, uh, you know, more than happy to do that. And when we have a starting point that is authentic and real and feels like you really went to a real place, mm -hmm. then our effects work just looks so much better because we have this fantastic material to cut it against and to use as reference. And it just helps us all as artists raise our game to that reality. And, you know, our techniques vary on different films, but on a film like Solo, um, tying back to that theme of that grounded authenticity is a really important component of the of the work. 
the artists working on the movie enjoy that as well. You know, so many people here worked on the prequels where there was a lot of uh, the digital environment look and a lot of that work is really technically difficult, but so many people here mastered it. So then to go on to a movie where we're gonna do so much, as, as much as we can to preserve the practical sets, everybody here gets just as excited, but we can take all the techniques that we learned in making something so incredibly digital yet looking so real and apply it to a practical set. So everybody gets excited as a fan, but everyone can take all of those techniques that they've learned over the years and apply it in a practical way and it makes for a really, really great result. As like digital effects artists, is it more of an accomplishment to have 100% digital or have half and half and no one knows where? I think it would determine, I think it would be determined who you would be speaking to. If you're gonna to talk to the matte painters or the digital environment uh, teams, they might give you a different answer. I don't know, I won't speak for them, but for somebody who- Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today works in the 2D department, our job is to make things look photo real. If I do my job well, you have no idea I even touched the frame. I can't say I modeled Millennium Falcon. I can't say I animated Rio. But I have worked on every single sequence in this movie to make things look real. So for us, it's really satisfying to try to incorporate something digital, something fabricated with something practical, and have people not know we even did it at all. So for us, it's very, very satisfying. Is it a little bit more challenging on the CGI artists now that they have to have their work done before filming starts so you can do the hyperspace effects practically? Yes, in order to pull the Kessel Run off, you know, the artists at ILM had to have made more than 20 minutes of material and rendered it very high resolution in a wraparound format. So it's kind of like this weird warped format and it's, uh, it's 8K by 4K. So a 4K TV is really high resolution. Mm -hmm. This is like having five of those and to fill with content. And we made 20 minutes of content that had loop points and all these complicated technical things just so you could sit in the cockpit and do the Kessel Run from one end to the other. And then Ron Howard could call out at any moment and say like, oh, can you take me back to this queue? Or can, can we do that again, but I want more blaster fire from the right. Or I could work with Bradford Young, who was the DP, and he said, I just need that, but I need some green blasters on the left because I want to rim this person's face uh, at this moment. And be like, okay, okay, we're gonna do it again. We're gonna put this queue here so we could interactively make changes on the set on top of the pre-rendered ILM work, the work that had been prepared in advance mm -hmm. uh, to create the kind of interactivity we needed on set combined with that high quality visual that you could photograph directly and put directly into the film. The Kessel Run is one of the key moments in the film and it was also mentioned by Han Solo in the original Star Wars. So Star Wars fans have had 40 years of imagination that you now have to compete with. Yeah, we knew we had to raise the bar on what we had done so far visually in the story to make the Kessel Run really stand out and to be a really satisfying experience. Um, and that was going to be everything that we were putting on the screen visually and also just the way we approached it. We had more minutes of footage in the cockpit of the Millennium Falcon for this movie than any of the other Star Wars movies. So we knew we wanted to do some innovative things with the way we photographed that to make it feel real and fresh. Um, 
but the idea of this movie was that it started on you know Han's home planet and was very practical and grounded and just was like you just really wanted to get out of there and by the end it was practically a Jules Verne story right there's monsters in space and you're being chased with these black holes that are sucking you in so we really wanted it to feel like it was escalating through the entire thing to where you, when you get to that point and he finally gets the thing to go into hyperspace you know it really pays off so hopefully that's how people feel as a, as a viewer that we really kind of raise the bar and raise a level of adventure as the movie goes on. L3 performed by Phoebe Waller-Bridge seemed to be a breakthrough effect and character in Solo. Uh, explain the process in bringing her to the screen. She was such a fantastic actress, and she was so game to collaborate with us um, on the way we create this character. So what you see in the movie is actually Phoebe's performance. This wasn't a separate motion capture performance with a separate actor or anything. This is actually Phoebe wearing a practical suit, and pieces of that practical suit we actually used in the final shots. So what the final result is a mixture of digital artistry, all the digital pieces that connect between those, piece, those practical uh, suit designs, um, and of course her performance bringing it to life. But really a lot of that magic happens in the paint and the roto department as they try to integrate those two pieces and provide all that, that seamless integration between the two. When we started on the show we thought we were going to do this like you would do any other character that's going to be so digital. We approached it thinking okay we're just going to be painting her out and we're going to be replacing her. But we found out partway through the show or not even partway through early on that um, her performance was so alive that um, you know the client that Ron Howard wanted to keep as much of her as possible so rather than simply remove her we also had to roto every piece of her costume that wasn't green because we wanted to keep as much of her original performance as possible so rather than just doing one pass giving everybody a clean plate of the background and letting them comp in the animated character we had to remove her so reconstruct every place where she existed on every background, but then roto every single plastic piece of her so that we could do a smorgasbord and say, okay, in this shot we might keep the helmet, in this shot we'll keep the arms, maybe the legs, but we could kind of piecemeal it together and make it work so we could keep her, um, her live performance as clean as possible. Mm -hmm. So it created twice as much work for us, but it was actually really fun work. And while it looks great, I'm sure having her there definitely helped the other actors in the previously like a Jar Jar Binks situation where they had to step out and you had to pretend where to yeah. look. Um, they, it, it felt like they were more ingrained with her character. Yeah, especially when you look at the, some of the interchanges between um, Phoebe and Amelia or Phoebe and Donald. I mean, they're, they're all such great actors. And to be able to improvise on set and reach over and push each other and do all the things you can do when you're acting against somebody who's really sitting next to you, I think it really did raise the level of the performances in the film. She did some things on set that uh, I personally think that the animation uh, team probably never would have made her do. There were certain positions she would take inside the cockpit that ended up being so great that it was like let's make the digital pieces work because that is such a great performance. You know, if, if you were just going to remove her and put in a character, they might follow the rules of what, you know, that kind of uh, character with those limitations over the piece of her costume would end up with and we ended up having to to force some of it to make it work because her performance was so animated in and of itself. Now the Star Wars films have always gone along with film innovation. Is there a point where or would you be disappointed if there was a new Star Wars film that didn't innovate something new and is there a point where things can't get any better? 
I think there's always room for innovation, and it's different kinds of innovation. Um, certainly, we can do more today than ever before, um, but the kind of things that we're, the kind of areas that we're focusing our innovation on now really have to do more with uh, facilitating the creative storytelling and facilitating the director of photography, giving them more information on set so they can make better lighting choices in the moment on set, um, and facilitating the actor's performance. Um, there's, some, there's some actors who can act just great against a tennis ball, but how much better is it to be able to act against another actor? And those kind of things that raise the level of the performances in the film or raise the level of the creative storytelling, um, those kind of investments I think are always going to pay off going forward, in addition to always putting new exciting things on the screen. I mean, we always love blowing things up and there's always new ways to blow things up and things like that too. So there's a whole spectrum on which to continue to innovate. Yeah, I can't imagine ILM not finding a way to make something innovative. When you look at the character of Dryden, you know, it's Paul Bettany. It, Paul Bettany, it's an actor who looks human, but even just, you know, the scars that lit up on his face, you know, the way we approach that and the way we achieve that in and of itself was innovative. But if you watch the movie, you could think, oh, it was just a guy wearing makeup, and it wasn't at all. So that's what ILM does when something's presented to them. They, you can't help but make it innovative when you work here. <laughs> and on that, looking forth to the future and, and Star Wars Episode Nine, like Star Wars fans were very relieved and excited to hear that Princess Leia, Carrie Fisher, would be included in the film through using repurposed footage from previous films. Is that posing new technical challenges or just brushing up on things like previously established in like digital compositing? Still to come. We're working on it now. We're going to figure it all out as we go along. <laughs> well, I very much look forward to seeing the end result. Thanks so much, you guys. <laughs> Thanks so much. Thank yeah, really appreciate it. Good to meet you. Yeah. Cheers. Nice meeting you. Absolutely. Nice being there. Hey, guys. Thanks for watching. If you enjoyed this video, there are plenty more to come. So make sure you hit subscribe and check in with us at Fridays as we go live with the latest Star Wars news on Hyper News. And for podcast listeners, please check out the award-winning Steel Wars podcast with hundreds of interviews with Star Wars actors, behind-the-scenes people, and fans. That's available at steelwars.com, iTunes, or wherever good or bad podcasts are found. Now, click every link on this window and watch, watch it all. It's all good stuff. Totally great. Click. Click. Hey guys, I hope you enjoyed that really fun and informative chat with Beth D'Amato and Rob Bredow of ILM. This interview, along with last episode's Ray Park interview, were all part of the filming process for the solo Blu-ray article I did for Studio 10 back home in Australia. And if you want to see the finished clip, which came together so well, the link to that is in this podcast episode's show notes. While the regular episodes have been a bit spread apart this month, which may coincide with today, my child Harrison did turn one month old. So it's, it's a very fun but hectic time around the house. Our Patreon supporters have not been left high and dry. 
on the dollar support level, which gives you access to all the previous regular episodes of Steel Wars ad and interruption free. You also get our hyper news show, which is the news live streaming show, which takes place most Fridays, some Tuesday. Check your local guides. And this week's episode, episode 12's lead story is Kathleen Kennedy confirms the Boba Fett film is 100% dead. And that's with Sal Perales from Now This Is Podcasting. That's on the dollar tier. You get all the Hyper News episodes as well as all the back episodes in full. But on the $3 tier, you get such bonus episodes as our new movie commentary, The Last Jedi, with The Last Jedi's own Details. Details was in LA for a couple of weeks and he came over and we had a ball watching The Last Jedi doing an audio commentary and getting to hear him share even more behind the scenes stories and thoughts so that is an awesome time that you can either sync up with the movie or you can just listen to it in the car at work and um, you can follow along you've you've seen the last jedi before also up this month is our solo commentary which we did with the guys at making star wars jason and randy and there is also a new Robbo report, which goes for about an hour. A really funny episode. Robbo is my opinionated Star Wars friend that started calling in to the uh, new shows that um, I was very uh, taken with his um, nitpicking of Star Wars. It is uh, very hard to uh, dedicate the time to get all these episodes out, but I'm making sure the Patreon are getting their weekly bonus. And uh, if you enjoy the regular episodes and you want to hear a bit more and also ensure that uh, the podcast continues, check it all out at patreon.com forward slash steelwars. We'll be doing a special episode about it, but go to makingstarwars.com and check all the info out about the Kessel Toy Run. This is the second year that Brandon of the Kessel Toy Run is rounding up brand new Star Wars toys, books, all that good stuff to get to sick kids this Christmas to brighten up their families, their Christmas, their, their brothers and sisters with really cool Star Wars toys. Brandon's going to be on the show in the next week or two to lay down how you can be a part of it but please give them a follow on social media on twitter and instagram it is the kessel toy run and just giving them a follow is a good amount of support boosts up their numbers and give them a retweet or two because that is an amazing cause that um when you see the photos of these kids getting the toys like there's a photo of someone dressed up as Ray giving a Ray to a little sick girl and come on the Kessel Toy Run and you can get all the info on makingstarwars.net as well and that's uh, a really cool thing you guys a super cool thing but until then thank you guys so much for listening really appreciate it if you enjoyed this episode Drop us a tweet. Uh, The new episode is always pinned to the top of the Facebook and Twitter feed. So uh, let us know what you thought. I hope you enjoyed it and it helps spread the word. And hopefully other people can listen and enjoy it. And we can make more podcast episodes. 
And I think to myself, what a wonderful world. May that force. This podcast is part of the Planet Broadcasting Network. Visit planetbroadcasting.com for more podcasts from our great mates. I mean, if you want. It's up to you. If you're after more Star Wars listening, please check out the Making Star Wars Podcast Network at makingstarwars.net, where you can find such great podcasts as Blue Harvest, First Order Transmissions, Idiots Array, Making Star Wars Now This Is Podcasting, Podcast 2187, Rebel Girl, Rogue One, Tarkin's Top Shelf, The Cargo Hold, and The Sith List. So that's planetbroadcasting.com and makingstarwars.net. Los Angeles, tickets are now on sale for our final live podcast of the year at Geeky Tees Magnolia Boulevard, Burbank on Saturday, December 15th at 4pm. For the first time ever, we'll be doing a live podcast version of our annual listener prediction review show where we review all the Star Wars news predictions that you guys made at the start of the year. I'll be joined on stage by a grip of previous Steel Wars guests, along with the live audience, to help us decide who was the Jedi Master Star Wars predictor for 2018. And spoiler alert, I did not fare well in this competition. It's going to be a hilarious afternoon of live Star Wars fun, Saturday, December 15th, 4pm at Geeky Tees Burbank. Tickets are on sale at merchostore.com. The link is in the show notes. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Geeky Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs> 